Hello, and welcome to This Week in the Ancient Near East, the podcast that takes archaeology exactly as seriously as it deserves. I'm Alex Jaffe, director of the Bob and Ray Institute of Archaeology at the University of Southern North Dakota at Hoople. With me, as always, are two academics from real institutions, Professor J.P. Dessel of the University of Tennessee and Professor Rachel Hallett of the State University of New York at Purchase. We're coming to you from the Peels Brothers College of Brewing here on the beautiful Hoople campus. Today we're talking about a new discovery of an old phenomenon, an industrial-scale beer brewery at the site of Abydos in Egypt, dated to the very beginning of the Pharaonic period. Why were early kings brewing beer for people? Was it simple payment for services, a way to keep workers from getting dysentery, or just to keep them buzzed enough so they wouldn't ask questions about why they were building pointless projects for fake gods. It also raises the question, how are Egyptian kings like professional wrestlers? Well, I think, uh, first of all, that the most exciting thing is, is the news that we're the 35th most popular history podcast in Belgium. I think it's very exciting news, and we should all be very proud. And uh, I just want to know if it's more heavily Walloon or heavily Flemish. I'd like some kind of breakdown. I, I'm, not, I'm not sure that, I'm not sure I want to go there, but, um, <laughs> but it does play into the topic of today's uh, discussion because, you know, that's why I'm, I'm drinking this uh, Belgian Abbey Ale. Nice. Um, eight, and, eight and a half percent. So if, <laughs> if I, if I'm, you don't hear me in the second hour. <laughs> well, we'll we'll send a Saint Bernard up to the third floor. Yeah, just look for me under the table somewhere. But uh, but yeah, and this is another. But this is another topic that's that's close to my heart. Um, the beer is close <laughs> close to your hand. To my hand, the alcohol will be close to my circulatory system shortly, because you know as. I don't mean to toot my own horn, but I did write something about this. Yeah, back, yeah. back there in the day about this, these kinds of beer. Yeah, you were things. you were way ahead of the curve on uh, on uh, potent potables and complex society. Yeah. No edibles, though. No, that yeah. we, we covered that topic. Yeah, so that's a new thing, though. Yeah. Right. Well, what did you say when you wrote about it? Give us the one-line summary. <laughs> Just the elevator pitch, because it yeah. was in current anthropology. So even if it's 250 words or less, it could be a, a long time before you uh, <laughs> get to the end. That's true. And if you go on JSTOR to try and download it, it'll be like $39.95. So, <laughs> well, we won't do that. No, I'll just charge you a straight 20 bucks. Um, <laughs> call me for the PDF. No, it's the idea that uh, that early states, like in like in Egypt, uh, these very early dynasties, zero, double zero, one, two. One of the things they did was brew a lot of beer to get people to get people on board with uh, with the process of being a state and to pay them 
when they when they would extract their labor <laughs> and this continued throughout the old kingdom and and i uh, and it's visible in mesopotamia also guys would uh, guys guys and gals would be paid in beer and bread right beveled rim bowls and, yeah. and it's a it's a regular feature of early complex societies around the globe right and uh, and this new discovery at Abydos, just uh, which is not even the first brewery at Abydos, and it's not even a new discovery. Right, it's a rediscovery. Yeah, yeah, but they found a lot more of it now than they did back in 1912. And such big portions. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's a regular smorgasbord of of uh, beer gardens down there, but I think it speaks to the it speaks to the point that uh, they're doing a lot of brewing and they're doing a lot of drinking they are and they uh, are might not be eight and a half percent probably <laughs> no though uh the british museum that did you watch that little video clip of uh of them brewing beer and i yeah. guess i read about it i guess they uh they got it up to six six percent abv which is you know that's the part that always that always puzzled me. Would you want people who are hungover to be building your pyramids? Well, obviously they were able to keep that straight line in place. <laughs> well, somebody would, but don't you think there'd be a lot of workman compensation claims afterwards for <clears throat> missing fingers and squished limbs? I'm not sure if your if your complex state really cared that much about uh, workman's comp. I mean, they were yeah, it's not like they were wearing steel-toed, you know, sandals. The Doc Martens <laughs> up there. Well, it's, there's a couple things about all that. Firstly, in, um, in both environments, Southern Mesopotamia and, and Egypt, um, you can, I think you can consume a lot of liquid uh, mm. and sweat it out pretty fast. Um, so yeah. I'm not quite sure you know, how drunk they're actually getting. And secondly, there was some discussion about how a lot of these beers are probably ranging in the 4% category. So it wouldn't have been that, you know, it wouldn't have been that high. Um, the other thing is, is if they're, okay, so what was the ration? There was a, some number for the, how much they would drink or how much they would get get rationed in, in uh, Egypt. It was something on the order of 10 pints a day. Something like that. Right. So if you figure, you know, you have a pint or two in the morning to get you going and you consume probably most of it at the end of the day, then, then you know, maybe it wasn't such a big deal. Maybe a pint, you know, in the middle of the day. Just pick me up. Yes, yeah, right. Besides, what else are you going to drink? It's not like you can drink the water, right? I right. Mean, you know, the water is not as clean as today's water. So, well, right. and, that, and that's, that's the, the part that everybody, everybody always misses all the parts, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> <laughs> that in, in all complex societies, right up until the present, everybody's drinking beer, drinking wine, drinking spirits, because the water is terrible. The water is the stuff that's going to kill you. Right. So, yeah. You know, through the through the 19th century in America, until you had, you know, secure water supplies, Americans are drinking 
basically like Egyptians. They're drinking beer for breakfast. They're right. drinking cider for lunch. They're drinking right. whiskey for dinner. Yeah. Extraordinary and, quantities. Right. And the other thing, right. So, so right there, it, they're used to it. They're probably very acclimated to it. Mm -hmm. uh, just like we, we think that, you know, European populations are. Yeah, they're drinking it since they were small children. Right. And secondly, it's the big source of calories. So right. it's not like they have a real choice. I mean, you know, this is what they need to do. It's and liquid, liquid bread. Liquid bread. And, uh, and, and so they're probably quite used to it and acclimated to it. And they probably, you know, have some kind of system of, of drinking it over, you know, over a 12 hour period or whatever. Right. And it's also how they're being paid. So, you know, it's, it's sort of like, this is how you're being paid culturally and physiologically we're used to it. And this is, you know, this is it. We just have to figure out how to work within this system. Yeah. And you know, it probably dulls the pain of having to move giant blocks <laughs> over large, large swaths of land. Um, you know, if you're if you have just a little buzz going, maybe it's not so terrible to have to do that day in and day out. Right. With the lower level of the workers. Yeah, exactly. And 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 one of the articles that we sort of were looking at, one of them said the pyramids wouldn't have been built without beer. And and that's probably true. But the flip side of that is, you know, social insurrection, you know, probably would have happened without beer. You know, it's, it's a little, there's quite a bit of bread and circus in all of this. Um, it takes the edge off. It allows everyone to get a good night's sleep. And it, it allows everyone to, you know, as the state is forming around you and deploying your labor, um, it, you know, it sort of puts these people a little bit, uh, puts all the labor force, you know, in a little bit of a miasma. So they're not all agitated about the, uh, the long arm of the law. Right, right. And you didn't mention that the good source of calories too. So they're, right. they're not starving. Um, but, but the origins of beer also go back vastly earlier. Uh, and there, there are um, proposals or analyses that suggest that <clears throat> brewed stuff originates maybe even in the late epipaleolithic right at what wadi kubania <coughs> something like that right the, the wadi kubania data if i recall there's like two schools of thought that you know stuff is happening in the epipaleolithic of wadi kubania and that all of that data is wrong <laughs> and, and it's and it's much later and right. i and i always have to get up to speed to remember which side of the argument I'm on, whether everything's really early or whether that early stuff is all misplaced. But yeah, there is that suggestion that it's happening much earlier. Well, that's um, interesting. And in, and in the Natufian also, uh, that, uh, that these cut marks in, in bedrock in the Levant are actually being used to brew up some kind of nasty alcoholic stuff that is is beer like so but <clears throat> but Let's distinguish between all that and the date of this new find which is more or less 5000 years ago right so so, so dynasty 0 dynasty 1 right. nomer right uh, the, you know the beginning of the egyptian dynastic tradition or the mythical beginning of the the dynastic 
tradition. Right, which makes perfect sense actually, because if you're talking about beer as uh, being part of early state formation, so this is the moment of state formation in Egypt, or it's, it can be argued that this is the moment of state formation in Egypt. We could also talk about King Scorpion, but we don't have to. Or the King Scorpion Bowl. That would have been the best thing. If there was a Scorpion Bowl in, in the reign of King Scorpion, then we would have known the relationship between intoxicants and uh, state formation. Well, I think that there was a think that there was a very clear relationship between intoxication and state and state formation. I'm going to move over here away from the leaf blower. Um, but this is the part that's that's always uh, confused and and fascinated me is and and you know how much I like to talk about state formation. I, like that you <laughs> I thought you were going to say you know how much I love to be confused and fascinated. <laughs> Well, that's just, that's the baseline right there. <laughs> but so, and maybe this is the time for, for our, our to, to roll out for our Belgian listener, <laughs> the whole, uh, the whole professional wrestling um, analogy. Oh, the Seb hat. Doesn't take much to get back to the old Seb hat, does it? That's right. <laughs> but it fits with the beer. So, so you have this you have this ceremony that originates at the earliest the earliest days of Egyptian proto history. Mm -hmm. King goes around the country where the claimant to be king goes around the country and he he runs back and forth really fast, right? And really ma majestically between <laughs> even though we now know he's only 5'3". That's right. <laughs> So, you know. All the more reason he needs to really prove that he can handle it. <laughs> right. Exactly. And and so and he's like the he's like the hero. He projects himself as the hero. Now my theory, having read all this again, all this beer stuff again, is that the only way that people are going along with this is <laughs> is that if they're getting free beer to attend this this ridiculous ceremony. Right, and probably a little bit of, uh, of animal protein. Right. A little roasted flesh. Right. Right. So if you were going to Yankee Stadium and, they, and it was free beer day, mm -hmm. you, would, you would take one for the team. Mm -hmm. You'd go, yay, Yankees. Yeah. And you'd watch you know, whoever it was running around the bases while you drink your big gulp of... Yeah. yeah, I don't think it would be a negative thing to see somebody running around that to see the king. I think everybody wants to see the king run around like an idiot. Um, I think it's probably a huge source of entertainment as well as as pride and renewal. And uh, I mean, and, well, I think if our presidential candidates were, were to do the said head, we might actually get presidents who are aged, you know, under the age of 70. Well, that's true. That's, that's true. Yeah. Is, is Djoser the first one to run from Hebsed in the third dynasty or is, is, do we know evidence from before Djoser? Mm. Isn't there intimations that there's something going on earlier? I, no, I, I thought in dynasty clear. one that there, there's some kind of. Right, and they're, th they're throwing big, <clears throat> big rocks or logs or something. <laughs> it's like a, it's like a big Yukon, Yukon, you know, festival or it's like well it's like a scottish it, festival in caber they're running around they're probably throwing axes at each other 
Right. right. That's why I think that all these guys are like professional wrestlers. Mm-hmm. That that they're they're specifically trained these Egyptian king claimants to to do all these kinds of athletic and probably a bunch of very violent kinds of activities to show off for the crowd and mm-hmm. not get hurt themselves. And and in this period, certainly before, if we believe in dynasty double zero, um, or negative zero, whatever they're whatever the, the experts are calling it now, there were a lot of these claimants, these proto-dynasties. So maybe they were actually wrestling like professional wrestlers and uh, duking it out. Right. I think maybe right. we As should rep- explain, go ahead. No, no, you go. I was just gonna say, I think we should explain this whole dynasty zero thing in case our listener be- It comes before one. Right, exactly, <laughs> that, that there was, that the series of dynasties was created in the Greek period and- uh, Oh, oh lot- come on logging now. Oh, come on. <laughs> I'll, I'll do it really quick and then- and then, yeah. uh, and then we just, we archeologists or the, they archeologists at the beginning of the, in the 19th century discovered there was actually stuff going on before dynasty one, hence dynasty zero and then zero, zero. I'm done. <laughs> and that's where the beer comes in. Yeah. Because everybody has to be in a certain mindset to go along with all this nonsense. And the other thing is where this big beer installation, this beer making installation is found, is found in Abidus, which is arguably one of the two biggest, most important sites for this time frame, for this early state formation time frame. One of the statelets. One of the, one state- of the statelets in the Kennebend. So there's but there, but there are a bunch of these uh, breweries at different sites. Right. Like, this is this is apparently the largest in, by a long stretch. And, at Mahasna, and, at Badari, at Balas. Oh, okay. But uh, they're all more, much more modest. This is this is clearly attached in some way to the whole rise of the state, and and they keep referring it to as a royal brewery because of the nature of the site of Abydos. And I think that all works. Right, that right. That's this... the interesting thing, I think, that it's- right, a, And it's vast quantities. Vast quantities in a, what's clearly a royal necropolis um, of some form. So right. stuff is going on there that's not going on in all those other sites I wasn't aware of that you were just mentioning. <laughs> right, exactly. And it gets back to this, you know, the issue of scale. And this is a, a this is a, a traditional Egyptian industry that gets, you know, utilized in a way never before seen by this emerging statelet with some sense of royal prerogative in that they're producing tremendous amounts of beer for the consumption and rituals of the royal house, as well as undoubtedly some degree of patronage, like, you know, Normir beer, you know, start <laughs> your day with a Normir. And, and, uh, and yeah, that's, it's good advertising, it's good policy, it's, uh, it's a good way to get stuff built. And uh, really, it's the only kind of thing that you can use to pay off squadrons of laborers to, uh, to undertake your building projects. Yeah, yeah. So maybe this is a good time to bring up gender roles in beer making. <laughs> um, okay. Only because, only because there's, on, on the household level, there's lots of evidence that women are involved, the same people who are baking the bread are making the beer because the ingredients are the same and you can't tell whether you're, you're you know, 
you're, you're crushing your grains, you're crushing your barley for bread or for beer. So it all kind of goes on together in the household. Plus you got all those wacky little dioramas which show women engaged in this kind of- Well, those are a little bit later, but- Yeah, yeah I know they're a little bit later, but you know, let, let, me, let me have my little dioramas. <laughs> Uh, so, so there's a difference between household manufacture of beer and industrial manufacture. Just like beer. today. Yeah. You know, we, we all have friends who brew beer and, uh, and, the, and it's also taking place at the industrial level and there's sort of different niches because of the, you know, because of the price point. Yeah. Now that probably didn't exist. The niching in the niches in antiquity were more along the lines of, of, of uh, you know, as a, um, as payment. Right, right. right. Now, do, do we think that there were um, household microbreweries or is everybody just making their oh, own, yeah. the way they make their own, no, the way they, you make your own iced tea and your own lemonade, um, as opposed to selling it to your neighbors? Well, I think that there, uh, I don't know every household, but many households, most households are probably doing this also. Again, for the for the reason that you can't drink the water because it's filled with yeah. your, your your you know fecal bacteria and your neighbor's fecal bacteria and you'll die. Right, and um, and you know all of a sudden there's all this coriander in the springtime, and what are you going to do with all that coriander? Well, you're gonna you're gonna throw it into a variety of concoctions. It's well, a bumper Alex, crop. This, this sort of feeds into your other big passion of late, and that is not just not just. Uh, potables, but also uh, the fermentation process, all sorts of- uh, All a package. All sorts of brine products. And of course we don't have the evidence for, you know, the earliest kimchi and the earliest pickles and the earliest sauerkraut. But um, those probiotic packages of, of uh, pop, and <laughs> pop and fun are undoubtedly part of the mix. They must be also um, fermenting uh, fruits and vegetables. Well, this is the theory that is mine. It's my, <laughs> theory. Say, my theory. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's all a package. Uh, I think that all of these fermented things that that are, you know, produced by yeast and uh, and aerobic bacteria, Acetobacter and uh, Saccharomyces, as we as we call them in the business, um, settling gently from the air onto everything. That uh, that you eat, but controlling them is is the big thing. And right. using them to preserve foods, making making pickles, making kimchi, making beer, sauerkraut. making sauerkraut, making sourdough, yogurt, uh, yep. yogurt, yeah. and uh, cheese, other fermented or cheese, different kinds of cheese, not the necessarily the stomach rennet cheesy, but they probably figured that part out pretty early too. Right. And they're probably doing it at a low level because if we're to take both ethnographic and especially historical um, examples, we know that people do this on their own. That in all time periods, and especially now, for instance, in Brooklyn, everybody is doing their own fermenting mm -hmm. uh, according to their own tastes and coming up with their own you know, special recipes of, of kimchi and sauerkraut and things like that. So it would be something that you would anticipate, expect would be done at the lowest level, at the local level, uh, household level rather. And, and then you have the big industrial uh, function of 
producing very specific products like beer because that's what's that's the currency for labor. Right, right. and there's a certain skill set that that's necessary for different <clears throat> products. So for beer, <clears throat> you need certain control over temperature. Though not much, according to those yeah. brewers at the British Museum, they seem to keep things. They it seemed to be pretty low tech. Yeah, overall. Yeah. Overall. But but to do also to do it at scale, you need you need uh, production facilities and and uh, access to raw materials at scale. So right. here's a question that I want to speculate about wildly, which is, um, do we think that so obviously they're feeding all their people, they're they're, they're supplying the beer to all their people, all the laborers. We've just been talking about that. Do you think it tasted as good as the home brewed beer that everybody was making on their own? Um, because were they, were they sort of just fulfilling their duty to pay the wages in beer or did it really have to taste good for people to not revolt and, and rebel rather? And uh, um, like, did they care how it tasted? And I can't remember if the excavators, what residue they found specifically, like was it coriander or was it dates or whatever? What, what were they flavoring in the industrial size beer vats that we're talking about? Well, the, ex the experimental work that's been done on the basis of, of various, especially Mesopotamian recipes <clears throat> is supposed, to, I mean, the few things that I've tasted, it's very, you know, floral and aromatic and they've got coriander and they've got cumin and they've got lemon, maybe not lemon peels, but certainly dates <laughs> and figs and, you know, they're throwing all this time, time be a big one. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So you guys think that they're even in these eight huge brewing units at Abidus, they're taking the time and the care to flavor them nicely? I don't think it really matters, right? So if you're making beer at, at the household level and then you're being paid, and that's the method of payment, and it's it's a less alcoholic beer, it's a less flavorful beer, it's still the currency. And it's and it's not free, but it's what you're earning. So it's like, you know, yeah, at home, I'm brewing some kind of fancy, fancy brew because I have all this stuff available, but I'm getting paid in Miller. You know, that's fine, right? <laughs> right? Here's, a, you know, it's the end of the day. Here's your case of Miller beer. You're going to say no? No. You're going to say, ah, this lousy government crap. Right. Okay. That's, no, that's a very good analogy. I like that a lot. It's like, it's probably like government cheese. <laughs> wow there's a concept that really does not deserve to be pushed any further <laughs> yeah, so that just sort of occurred to me um, <laughs> good i i can't imagine that that expectations were were terribly high on on the side of the 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 you know pyramid constructing beer consumer okay. of, of let's say the fourth dynasty okay <clears throat> Um, and that answers my question nicely. Very, very. You know, the, maybe they were enticed from their villages. Oh, you know, come to, come to Giza to taste our <laughs> new home brew. No, 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 come to Giza to see to see a quarter of a pyramid. Stay at Giza for, for you know, for Joseph's <laughs> Joseph's juicy beer. That's right. Take the take the whole tour. <laughs> Well, how much choice was how much choice did they really have? I mean, this is the whole point, and this gets back to, 
you know, bread and circus. How much choice did they really have? They didn't have any choice. Right. The agriculturalists, the farmers, you know, they're out growing, they're out, you know, working the land and you've got these, you know, scheming, <laughs> scheming short little guys at Nakata, at Harnkampolis, at, <laughs> at the Abydos, who are scheming and plan planning and plotting and picking, you know, picking the strongest nephew that they have to do the seb head. <laughs> and, and they're concocting this whole big recipe and it's all based on, yeah, we're gonna tell them that when they're done planting their fields, they have to come, you know, into the core, wherever, you know, whichever little statelet and they have to, you know, donate three months of labor, but we'll pay them in, you know, 10 pints of beer a day. Mm -hmm. And that's, there has to be, you know, there's a little bit of co-option and behind that co-option, there had to be some kind of effective method of a little bit of coercion. Right, um, right. That's the part that, that always confused me, is, is what's the balance between um, you know, coercions and, and benefits? So if you're, if you're a farmer out in the boondocks somewhere, you know, hundreds of miles from one of these centers, do you... But I don't think they were hundreds of miles. I think that's the thing about Egypt is that everybody's in the Nile Valley because that's the only place you can live. Well, vertically. Right, but, but even vertically, you have everybody, you have these three statelets at the Kenna Bend. And, and whatever the population is, they're all proximate to one of these three centers. And for, some, for whatever reasons, the, these are the statelet incubators. And anybody living further afield were the ones who were probably like, Hey, who, who are those guys marching marching down the Nile? Who are they? And, you know, they were totally surprised. They had no idea what was happening. You know, thirty miles upriver or thirty miles downriver. I don't I think, know. No, I, no, because I've always pictured corvée labor based on you know you're already done harvesting down south. Up, oh, you're being sent for. You're being conscripted to build a pyramid up north until you have to go back to your you're farming and then, you know, you're done and the people from Middle Egypt, they're going up to build the pyramids. So you're but even in the Nakata three, even in dynasty know. zero, when all of this know. stuff is, you know, it's well, Nakata, Nakata two is the period where I think you've got a lot of the gestation period for all of this. Cause that's the period, right? With the painted tomb in Abydos. Right. And that right. painted tomb, you know, really tells a very, very rich and detailed story about where we are on the, on the rise of social complexity and, and by Nakata 3, my God, Nakata 3, QMUJ, you've got stuff coming in from all over. You've got inter, you know, interconnections with the Levant. You've got all sorts of wacky stuff going on, but it's pretty ramped up. Yeah. So maybe in the Nakata 2, they're just dependent on local labor. And maybe in the Nakata 3, that extension of the statelets is sopping up labor further afield but is it a hundred miles i think i think once you have the the scorpion um mace head when you have some sort of unification or conquest or whatever and then once you have the narmer palette right i'm going back to all the old tropes um you definitely have a, a south north cohesive unit whether they want to be cohesive or not they're being forced to be so i think by then but let's let's say let's go from nagata three onward if if you're a farmer did you want to go wow this is great i get to serve <laughs> I think you 
I think you might want to go if you're getting paid besides your daily beer. If you're getting some other sort of rations you can send back to your family, then you probably do. Oh, want we to don't. Go. We don't know anything. Oh, send send a salami right. to your boy in the army, kind of. <laughs> <laughs> well, Maybe it's your only opportunity to to get on a boat and you know see the world. Yeah, <laughs> this is great. <laughs> and you don't and you don't want to be idle between your farming duties. You know, you don't want to just be sitting there not earning a living. Um, oh, there's what do they plenty. say about about idle hands? The devil's tool, <laughs> right? I'm right. sure there's. And, plenty and your wife do. will be saying to you, "You're just sitting here. You're not doing anything. Your farming is over. Why don't you go just work for the king?" And bring us. Uh, or ah, the so the wives were enlisted <laughs> in this. Uh, <laughs> in this narrative of the rising state just to get them out of the house just to get the husbands out of the house well yeah just go just, just build whatever he wants right I, but i think you know, that no i think there had to be some sort of of i mean I, I again i'm thinking much later where you have workers villages from you know, a couple thousand years later where you do have families living there like you know the state is supporting its its workers maybe the seb het was a um was a way to get everybody uh, centralized. And then once they get up there, they just start saying, hey, you want to stick around? We've got some work to do. We'll give you some beer. You're not planning. So, you know, maybe it was a big advertisement to, um, to come to the core, to come to, to Abydos or Nakata and stick around for a while. Yeah, yeah well, every, everything in Egypt is, a, is an <laughs> advertisement. <laughs> and that's the part that always kills me is that certainly by the Nakata three and, and afterwards, everything in Egypt has a little advertisement on it. Every conceivable object ha has an advert. <clears throat> so it's like today when you go to the gas station, you pick up the, 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 the pump and then the, the little screen goes on and it's the gas station TV network. Oh, it's so and annoying, yeah. That is horrible. And, but in Egypt, everything is like that. Oh, you know, here's a... You know, you want to buy some, you want to buy a jar? Here's a tag. Here's a, here's a bone tag. It has That's the, the king's picture on it. I've um, never quite understood those tags, but. It's, it's everything. Every, yeah. every conceivable craft is enlisted in, to advertise this guy. But, right. but certainly at, at some point, you'd think that somebody would come back from, I don't know, building a pyramid and, and he'd say, Guys, don't go. <laughs> they really, really sucked. Right. They're these big blocks of stone and they pinch your fingers. Right. But you get free beer. You get free beer, but the overseers, they're very mean. Right. And they have whips and... <laughs> we don't know uh, that. Well, I don't know. <laughs> they, they would have maces. They'd be bopping well, over. You know, at the workers' village, they were taking care of their medical needs. Hmm? Which in, in, in the old kingdom? Well, certainly not, uh, later than the old kingdom, right? Later. Yeah. Like that middle well, kingdom workers village. Right. right. Daryl Bakri. Yeah. Well, they had, worked, they had a long time to work on their whole healthcare system by that time. Right. So then the core issue is how is it? Well, there's, there's a couple of issues for me. One issue is what's the inflection point where these aspiring almost microscopic elites reach a critical mass where they actually have influence over a larger population. And then two is how on earth do they convince a relatively agrarian decentralized population to, to, 
to go along with all their cockamamie ideas. Okay. Um, well, hey, you're the beer just is is it just the beer? I mean, it's, it's sort of like you know spring break or you know weekend right. Bernie's. It's, it's a like hookup in Daytona Beach. I mean, I I guess at a fundamental level, if we just look at our own society, yes, dopey adolescent boys will do anything for beer. Right, but it's I more mean, than that, though. No, it's it's more than that because again, we're talking ele- about what an elevated concept you have. Wow. We're talking about abitus, right? Which is, so we've got these royal barrels and some of them, they're just mastabas, they're the bench tombs, they're not the pyramids yet, but they're big, right? And they're very well organized with, with subterranean systems and so forth. So there's gotta be this, I'm always into respect. There's gotta be some respect for the king and for respect for the work that they're doing. So on the one hand, they get free beer and maybe they get to party and hang out at night. But on the other hand, they believe in their gods. They believe maybe ah. by now they believe that the fa- the king is is a god, or else that the king certainly is right. Okay, gods. you come to my village and, and you say I'm a representative of the god on earth. Yeah, <laughs> and I'm going to go. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, but Rachel has a good point, and this is a point I can always dismiss as not being a, a person of faith. That faith really does it can potentially explain a lot. I mean, it certainly explains a lot in our own society. It does, um, actually, right. And it and explains extraordinarily irrational behavior in a world of science. So, um, so yeah, I think that that may well be something, that there was a really, you know, that these people have a very deep faith. It's the only show in town. Yeah. They don't have sciences in any kind of sense of that we can appreciate. Um, they have geometry and that they probably all understand, but there's, you know, creation and all of these kinds of things. And so faith may well, may well play a very important role in all of this. So, so somebody comes to town and says, I'm the representative of the, of the, uh, the hawk, the hawk king. (laughs) And somebody, the local guy will go, Hey, we're, we're the Ibis worshiper people. And then the other guy goes, Ibis, hawk, they're both birds. <laughs> and, you know, and the Ibis and the, bird, and the hawk, they, they love to talk to each other. And they're all part of this big avian conception of, of the universe. And then that gets people on board. And, and, you know, next week, the hawk god is going to come to your town and he's going to run back and forth really fast. fast. Yeah. Right. And everybody's going, wow. That'll be great. Look at that guy. He's only 5'5", five, five, but man, can he move? Right. Is there going to be beer? <laughs> exactly. Right. So it's a mixture. It's a mixture of dopey male adolescence and alcohol and religion. Yes. And honestly, has anything changed? <laughs> there's not, a, there's not a single thing that's changed with that equation. It still works. Yeah, that's actually true. And we still bury our leaders in, in ceremonies and we attend ceremonies and build monuments. Yeah. Um, Though so, so Arlington National Cemetery upends all of that because it's completely, um, you know, everything is the same. Mm-hmm. Everybody gets the same demarcation. Except, so, for, J- in, except for JFK. <laughs> except for JFK. So there is sort of, that is a little bit turned on its head Right. In sort of the most, in a very rudimentary way, 
in the mythology of American democracy, that, that we all are equal and, and, and certainly the grand institution of the US military will treat you as, as all being equal. Right, right. Well, if we end up you know, doing a sort of motel of the mysteries, excavating American cemeteries and so on, then we're gonna, we're gonna be missing a lot of things that we want which, to understand. Which we, we wanna caution our listener that we, we don't really wanna do. <laughs> we don't recommend it. We don't think it's a good idea. To dig up cemeteries? <laughs> to dig no, up Arlington? No, yeah. don't, we don't wanna do that. No, no but, that's, not, you know, that's not what I was saying at all. But, but to look at it from a future perspective, not everything's gonna show up or we're not going to understand just from the archaeology alone exactly what's what's going on. Um, but on the third hand, you know, we do have a lot of clearly royal tombs with, because they are advertised as such um, in Abydos as well as in Saqqara. Right. And, and we could ask here, um, who is buried in Grant's tomb? We could. <laughs> um, <laughs> 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 it's, it's General Grant, his wife, and I believe his horse. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yes. So, yes. you know, the, it, it, it upends on the fourth hand, the egalitarianism, a certain amount of the egalitarianism. But then he was, he was president, so. Right. So and, can a, I... and, and a noted drinker. Send right. a case, find out what Grant is drinking and send a case to all my other generals, Lincoln said. <laughs> right. So I wanna just turn the conversation slightly a different direction, um, <laughs> possibly because I'm not drinking beer as we're, as we're talking. Okay. And uh, I just wanna, I think it's kind of neat that this, the beginnings of, or part of this, this brewery was already discovered in 1912 um, by this archeologist T.E. Pete, and he came across the <clears throat> edge of it um, and then for whatever reason, he didn't, th those excavations didn't, didn't dig the whole thing up. And here we are over a hundred years later. And I just like how archeology span builds on itself. And it doesn't have to be from, you know, 19, uh, 2018 to 2019 to 2020. It can be from 1912 to 2018 when I think they started to dig this. And I think it's just a kind of cool thing worth, worth pointing out that, uh, that, you know, it's a discipline that is still building and there's still lots to find and lots to discover. Don't roll your eyes at me. <laughs> There's no eye rolling going on at all. <laughs> and just if my eyes roll to the back of my head, though, please do let me know or at least <laughs> let my family know. <laughs> we'll bring you more beer then. <laughs> well, yeah, that's all the things you say are true. But apparently you don't find them as interesting as no, I do. On the other hand, on the 16th hand, if you dig the hell out of a site for you know, a hundred years straight, more or less, you find a lot of stuff and you go back to where your predecessors <clears throat> had to dig. And, and, that's, and that's okay. And this is between two mastabas, I think. Um, right now it looks like it's almost adjacent <laughs> to, to a apartment complex. <laughs> <laughs> well, in, in the modern. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, well, you know, there Abydos is a big site. They've been busy for a long time and uh, there's a lot of work to do and it's being hemmed in. So they yeah. got to get busy. Right, yeah. right. And, uh, um, and then the other thing I wanted to make sure that we, we say, because I don't think either of you have said it yet, is, is that um, these beer recipes didn't involve hops and it was, it was just the, um, it, it was just the wort and, 
um, the yeast, and uh, that's a whole different style of beer. And the and the secret blend of herbs and spices. Right, right. And again, the British Museum team that brewed their brewed some of this beer, uh, they consistently seem to to brew very clear, golden, light tasting beers, which is sort of the inverse of what we think of right. uh, being produced. That these were really quite respectable brews for, for the modern palate. I'd like to try some. Yeah, I'm a little bit skeptical about, <clears throat> I mean, I think that's under laboratory conditions. I think that in the field, rough and ready, when you're producing hundreds of gallons of this stuff on a daily basis, it's probably a little more, you know, coarse. But uh, that's but what the point of. That's the flavor profile is, is interesting because it's not, you know, we, we even though in America we're we're going through the uh, the golden age of craft brews, um, we don't really <clears throat> think of all these herbs and spices kinds of blends in right. quite a way. And I guess I guess we think about it as as very exotic, but. If you look at all of these articles on, on brewing in, in the ancient world, they all mention the same kind of suite of, of, uh, of uh, herbs. And so maybe the flavor palette is actually pretty limited to, it seems like coriander, thyme are both almost always incorporated, dates, and maybe a few other things. But all in all, maybe that's the that's what they're used to. And that's what they use in all of their sort of culinary um, endeavors. So maybe it's not quite as exotic as we think it is because it's probably limited to five to 10 sort of herbs and spices that get used and reused right. uh, in, in all of their recipes. Whereas now beer is, you know, it's just, it's a crazy degree of diversity from dessert beers with chocolate and, you know, pralines to, you know, citrus to spicy stuff. Right. Now it's just anything and everything from every possible, you know, uh, cuisine across the world. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And that's not what they were doing in Abitus for sure. Right. Yeah. 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 Even if they made a, a little, even if they added spices, it was probably three or four that got used Right. Yeah. Right. Well, I, I like your Miller beer analogy. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, you know, you go to the stadium. That's kind of what you get unless you want to go to beers of the world where you're really going to pay more. But but here it's it's worth mentioning. <clears throat> and and <clears throat> if only for the sake that uh, of their their possible sponsorship, um, Dogfish Head Brewery. Right has been brewing ancient beers with, uh, with the help of a, a biomolecular archeologist, uh, Pat McGovern from University of Pennsylvania. <clears throat> so they have uh, their first beer is called Midas Touch mm -hmm. based on uh, molecular evidence found in a Turkish tomb believed to have belonged to, to King Midas, brewed with honey, white muscat grapes and saffron. Right. The second comes from uh, a a Chinese tomb, meaning uh, which consists of beer, fermented grapes, hawthorn fruit, sake, rice, barley, and honey. And then there's another one, which is kind of a 
Mexican blend honey ancho chilies ground annatto seeds cocoa nibs cocoa powder and yet a fourth a uh, an Ethiopian styled beverage I have to click into this pure Ethiopian honey and uh, ground gesho tree or gesho tree as the bittering component it has a dry wine-like character with hints of licorice and star anise. So I guess the point is that everybody on planet Earth after a certain point uh, is brewing something like beer. Right. Whether it's beer mead, mead wine, beer mead wine, some, some, con some concoction that involves all of these kinds of things. Right. And the higher latitudes, you're going into more mead-like materials is certainly with with the flavor profile and then you're using more honey as the actual thing that you're fermenting because you have less barley and wheat to spare and the same thing when you're going down to africa there are sorghum beers there are beers brewed out of grains that the likes of which we've never even heard of <laughs> right and, so it's one of the great things that brings humanity together, really. There you Re go. Despite the use, the, the, the opportunistic, manipulative use of, of beer by, by institutions, by elites to control us. Beer brings us together more than it separates us. What a lovely thought. <laughs> that was good, right? <laughs> oh, that's... I, com I completely disagree, but it is a lovely thought. Because <laughs> all I think about is, you know, those last nine pints at the end of a long day. And when you're on pint nine, all of a sudden, you know, you're, you find yourself grappling with your trench mate <laughs> because of some, you know, some misperceived slight over the angle of your kilt, you know? <laughs> Well, that's a good, that's a good point. It's, uh, but we haven't talked about distillation or, or wine or any other kind of alcoholic beverage in this discussion, should we? Well, the, the, the fine du jour was a, was a brewery. That's true. So, yeah. all right. Well, maybe we should tune in for, for another, another episode where we talk about the whole panoply of, of beverages. Yeah. No, I think this is a very good stopping point. One of us has said something about goodness and niceness and peace, peace on earth. <laughs> and, the other, and the other has said the opposite. Right. <laughs> and I will stay neutral. All right. So maybe that, maybe that is a good place to stop. <laughs> All, right. All right. Well, I'll definitely drink to that. As always, we'd like to thank Eris Dessel and his moderately sized orchestra for our theme music. We also have to give special thanks this week to our sponsors, Bert and Harry Peels and the Peels Family Foundation. Remember their slogan, Peels, the beer with the barrel of flavor. To get in touch, leave us a comment. Send us an email at thisweekintheancientneareast, all one word, at gmail.com, or send us a postcard at P.O. Box 1177, Boston, Mass., 02134.